Welcome back to Basic Brain Heart, the show where we celebrate and interrogate creatives of all stripes. I'm Hannah Camacho. Today we have the loveliest human on. Her name is Liz Hannah. She's a screenwriter. And whether or not you've heard of her, you've definitely heard of her work. Um, Her movie The Post hit theaters in 2017, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, and made waves really big waves all across the world. It was an incredible film. Um, Not only that, but she just had another film, Long Shot, hit theaters uh, just a couple weeks ago. I think I saw it the first night it came out. And first of all, I love the movie. Definitely go see it if you haven't. Secondly, I was like, wow, this woman is so versatile. (laughs) She's got some chops. I've been following Liz's uh, success and her story for a little while, and I've been hoping to have her on the show, and she was gracious enough to say yes. And so it was just lovely to spend some time hearing about her process, her philosophy, her story. Um, and also, I really appreciate how she she actively works to remove ego from the storytelling process and really encourages everyone who's involved to uh, appreciate and really welcome in the collaborative piece of storytelling because it's really only going to create a better product in the end. I just, seriously, I was waving my hanky and I really appreciated her perspective and she shared some things we really haven't heard anyone mention up to this point on the podcast. So I know you're going to get a lot out of this. It's very meaty and um, Liz is very real and has no problem demystifying the process of writing and storytelling. If you're one of those people that likes to scroll on your phone while you give a podcast to listen, definitely check out the show notes because you can find Liz's Instagram and Twitter links there. Um, Give her a follow, keep up with her journey. Um, And I'm going to get out of the way now so you can hear my conversation with screenwriter and producer Liz Hanna. Liz, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I'm so, so stoked that you've taken some time to chat. I've been following your journey and man, has it been a ride so far. So thank you for taking some time on this Monday morning. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a roller coaster. Before we sort of jump into your backstory, which I know you've talked about in other interviews, so you don't have to belabor it if, if that's not your thing, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're up to these days before we sort of go into the past. Yeah. Um, so I just had a movie come out called Long Shot. Um, it is still in theaters. We're, we're, we're still hanging on week four. And it's um, fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, it was really exciting. It was a, it was a big departure, I think. Um, not really for me as a person, but definitely mm. um, I think people didn't expect my involvement in, totally. in a, you know, sort of big um, romantic comedy like that. So that was really fun. And then uh, I made a movie last year. Um, I wrote, uh, adapted a book called All the Bright Places. And so that was for Netflix. So that's um, hopefully we'll have a release date soon that we can talk so about. Exciting. Um, which is really, really exciting. I'm so proud of the movie. And it was a really incredible experience. And then I am currently um, adapting a book for Reese Witherspoon and Hello Sunshine called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. I love and, it. uh, it's probably my favorite book I've read in, I don't know how many years. And I was actually, you know, um, as I, as I adapt things, this is now the, I think the second or third thing I've adapted. Maybe the third, I, I have no idea. I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to answer that question <laughs> better at the end of the interview than at the start. Um, 
I, I try and like read the book really intensely at the beginning of the process. And then I don't go to it that often because I mm. have like my own notes and, and it's an adaptation. So I don't want to always get hung up on like stuff that may not be able to make it into 90 minutes or two hours. Mm. Um, cause you have to limit yourself. But I was actually rereading it this weekend and I was just like, fuck, this book is so good. <laughs> um, so, um, that's, I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's fantastic. And I and just to tease out a little bit, you mentioned a lot of people were really surprised at the romantic comedy um, angle and your involvement in that. Did you feel nervous going in? Like, I haven't necessarily tackled this before in a really public way. Did, did that put some extra pressure on you? How did you feel um, about that? Yeah, it, it happens so quickly that I think in retrospect, I mean, a, a lot of my career in sort of the first 18 months happened so quickly that there wasn't a lot of time for me to pause and get nervous about mm -hmm. any of it because yeah. I just kind of had to do it. And so I think in retrospect, if I had had, you know, time to, to think about it and like intellectualize it, I probably would have totally. been very nervous, but, sure. um, working with, you know, Seth and Jonathan Levine and Dan Sterling and Charlize, it's was such a collaborative and um, really warm place to come to as That's a writer. Lovely. So it, it really wasn't, you know, I think maybe on my first day I was like, am I funny enough for this because I'm about to sit down with Seth Rogen? And then, <laughs> you know, Seth has a really, I mean, A, he's an incredibly hard worker and, mm. and is super, super smart and um, I think kind of takes the piss out of all of it a little bit. Sure. And so um, it was a very, it was a really nice experience. And it wasn't really until like the movie started coming out and we started promoting it that I was like, oh yeah, this was kind of an interesting uh, choice. It was an interesting <laughs> one uh, I went on to. <laughs> I love it. Oh man. So let's rewind the clock a little bit because your story has been, it seems like at least from the outside looking in a bit of a whirlwind the last couple of years, but I'd love to, I know that it's been a lifetime in the making really. And I've sort of read up on your backstory so you can talk about whatever's interesting to you in your backstory. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure all of it is, but you know what I'm saying there. Yeah, um, none of it. <laughs> you're like, oh, I'd rather not talk about me. <laughs> but in terms of like growing up, um, and I know you grew up on the East Coast. Um, what were the elements maybe within your childhood or things that your parents did that you felt sort of set you up for love of story and interest in story and writing? Uh, maybe if you want to tease out those elements, that might be interesting. Yeah. Um, my, I mean, both my parents are super, super creative. My dad's a designer hmm. um, and has been, you know, um, I think very successful in his industry for a very long time and, and an extremely hard worker and was always doing like five different things at a time when I was a kid. And so I just grew up in a, a really like, and then at the same time, my mom, they, she had worked at a design firm and, and then, um, uh -huh. ended up owning and then ended up going to become a social worker and then, Whoa, owned a that's a leap for, <laughs> for a while. Um, and so, there was always just like a big sense of the arts in my mm. house. And I was really fortunate uh, to grow up in New York city around a lot of artists and see that perspective. Um, but at the same time, like, I think that was probably very intimidating at a young age. I knew I never wanted to go into the design world because, you know, I, I didn't have that, um, necessarily drive to go into that field mm. or that, I also had this kind of like shadow over me that I just had been around all these people my whole life and yeah. knew what it took to do that. Um, but at the same time, like my parents both were huge, huge fans of the movies and of going to the movies and, um, big readers. And so 
there was just always a sense of storytelling in my house. And, um, so I, I knew like from a very, very young age that I wanted to be involved in storytelling in mm. film. I just didn't really know what that meant after a very short stint wanting to be a professional baseball player. I then was like, I want to be, um, <laughs> want to be, uh, involved in telling stories. And I, so I didn't really know what that meant. And, mm. and so it was just about, um, kind of, figuring out the path to that but it was totally. really always you know I think it was always supported and and um really I was very fortunate to have a pretty well-rounded education mm. that was just watching movies totally at like what age do you think you started to dabble in writing as a medium you know a possible thing to explore um I def I mean I was writing I was always writing okay uh, my mom will definitely say that she always knew I was going to be a writer which um <laughs> I, it's not necessarily revisionist history, but, but it, it, cause she always did say that. Um, but mm. I didn't really get it cause I, I'm a fairly practical person and, um, sure. that just felt not really pragmatic to me. Um, and I, um, really thought there were just other people that were better at it than I was. And I wasn't really willing to put myself out there in such a personal way for a very long time. And so, um, but I mean, I was always, always writing. I actually have in my office, I have this like really sad framed photo of a typewritten story. I wrote about dogs when I was in like first grade <laughs> that my dad gave me a couple years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and my husband the other day was like, what is this thing with all these things crossed out? And I was like, it's not crossed out. It's on a typewriter and it's my story. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. And then when, uh, after high school, did you, or, or during high school, did you go to any sort of special art school or, um... so I went, I went to a, a public high school in okay. Connecticut where actually we had a really wonderful theater program. Um, they still do. Um, I just, I'm not there anymore, thankfully. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we actually had a lot of great people come like Leslie Headland went, um, oh, to wow. my high school and, um, Daryl Ween, who's a really great filmmaker and yeah. storyteller went there. Um, and so well, I don't think any of us had any ambition to be like, we're going to go make it. Um, but we all were very creative and all around each other. And so I was involved in theater and I kind of thought for a while I was going to go into theater. Um, but I live performance makes me so uncomfortable. Like still to this mm. day, I feel like I have PTSD of watching and I love going to theater, but it like makes me so anxious. And <laughs> yes. I, it, like, I can't, it, I just have like so much, PTSD so much empathy and <laughs> for, yeah, it like, yes. stresses me out. So, um, I ended up going to Pratt Institute in oh. Brooklyn, um, which was my dad's alma mater. And, um, the real impetus behind that was one, they have a film program that's sort of an intensive, um, almost like a conservatory. There, there were only like 20 kids in my class that were in that program. Oh, wow. And then overall you get a very well-rounded arts, you know, um, education. It was the first year is your foundation year. And so you don't, no matter what your, um, major is, you have the same classes as everybody who's doing fine arts as everybody who's doing graphic design. As it, so it's, it's extremely hands-on in terms of you do like six hours of figure drawing and six hours of color theory and all these things. And that I actually think was so beneficial to me as, uh, as just a creative person Absolutely. And, and also as a, as a critical person being able to th look at something in either aesthetically or logically or emotionally or intellectually or anything 
be able to say like, I don't like it, but this is why, and be, and be able to come up with a well-rounded answer rather than, you know, most of the people who are like, I just don't like this. And you're like, okay, <laughs> but I don't care if you just don't like it and aren't going to tell me why you don't like it. Um, so I think that was, it was, a, that was an extremely helpful education. Yeah. And, and again, like not planned. I didn't think that I was like, I'm doing all of this so I can be well-rounded. Uh, I just, <laughs> kind of did it. It was also in Brooklyn, which is uh, one of my favorite cities in the world. And I got to stay there for a long time. That's fantastic. Now, after um, school wrapped, did you try to make a a go for it immediately? Um, And was that in writing or more the production side? And did you stay on the East Coast, move to the West Coast? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. So I actually went immediately to grad school, which was a real choice. Um, So I was 21 Mm -hmm. and I went to the American Film Institute in LA and I producing. And so I got a master's in producing there. Um, and that was really, you know, I had, my mom is from LA. She had moved back to Los Angeles while I was in. And so I would go back and forth. And so during the summers, um, I would intern and I had interned at a production company called Whitewater Films, um, which is run by Rick Rosenthal. And he, uh, is an yeah. AFI alum and he really kind of took me under his wing and was like, I think you should do this. And I was working with these producers. And so I, and I saw the creative side and I saw what that was like. And I was like, Oh, I think that's really what I want to do. Hmm. Um, and so I then left. So then I went to AFI for producing and kind of very quickly realized that, um, a being a creative producer was the only thing I was qualified to do because, um, the line producing was just like, it would eat my soul alive. Mm. I'm, I'm not capable of doing that. I have, Absolutely. I have so much respect for line producers and some of my closest friends are line producers and I can't do it. And I think it was very clear to all of us that I couldn't do it. <laughs> and, um, and I really wanted to be telling the stories. And so from there I went and actually worked at Charlize's, um, production company, Denver Delilah. I had interned there in between my first and second years at AFI. And then when I graduated, they offered me a job. And so I worked there for about four and a half years in development. And I would say it was probably two years into that, that I realized I wanted to write full time, that Mm. I was enjoying the aspects of working with, producers and working with the directors and the writers, but I was having a real sense of like, I, I want to tell these stories and I, I want to be able to try it and I want to be able to try and tell them in, in a way that maybe somebody else can't tell them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I left there when I was 27 and I thought that would be like really easy. And then Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, it was not, um, and then now we're here. Uh, about That's five crazy. That's crazy. Thank you for kind of recapping that for sure. those who aren't super familiar with your story. And now I want to head into the juicy stuff, the philosophical oh. questions about writing. <laughs> um, you've kind of been writing, writing, writing now for the past few years. Did you find that, I mean, well, you've been writing ever since you were in first grade. Let's, mm-hmm. let's clarify, but um, finding your voice. I know a lot of writers talk about finding your voice, finding your voice. What does that mean to you and how have you managed to lock in on what your voice is or do you feel that that's a myth? Um, I, th- I don't necessarily think it's a myth, but I don't know that it's the right use of words. Like I sure. think that for me, um, finding my voice is, is much more accurate to finding the stories that I want to tell mm. and, and, and what is unique about my ability to tell them, which 
by the way, people may not find unique. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I, I'll see your answers on Twitter. Um, oh my but, goodness. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> All um, people. But, um, but I, I think it's really about just, you know, I think a lot of writers, particularly writers trying to break in, um, in film and TV want to find out like what's popular, what are people buying? Mm-hmm. What are people reading? What is that? And like, how am I going to break in into that world when that for me, I think just really delays finding what you want to say. Um, so that, that is a portion of your voice, but it's also, you know, I, I don't really think I found mine until I was writing the post because I realized that this was the type of story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. These are the types of, of films that I want to make. Um, and, that's not necessarily genre specific. That's just about the things that we're talking about, the things that totally. we want to say and the characters that were in them. And so it, it was, it, that I think is more important um, than anything because, you know, getting better at writing and is really just a process of time. And that yeah. is, it's a, it, it is a craft, like you can get yeah. better at it. And so, but no matter how good you are, if you're telling the wrong stories for you to tell, then mm. it's never going to anybody. So I think that for me was really, that was what it was specifically was honing in on like, or really tuning out what everybody else is saying and deciding what I wanted to say. Totally. I, and I love that you've, um, learned how to verbalize, um, different pieces and parts to a story, whether it's the mood, the style, the setting and what you were alluding to before. Um, now that you, you know, have such a kind of a mastery of story, can you verbalize well, what he has to well? And let's just, uh, um, well, compared to most of the rest of us, um, what draws you to a story specifically? I know you, you've been, I mean, you've written fiction, you've written nonfiction, you know, rom-com, et cetera. It's so many different um, tones. What is that common thread that you always find that, that really draws you in? It's always character. Mm. I mean, for me, I, I, um, I'm attracted to character. I'm attracted to character arcs. I'm attracted to complicated characters. And I think most specifically, um, I'm attracted to the gray area Mm. kind of of humanity. And that is generally best represented, at least in my work in the character arcs and the character development. And so I, and that's why I always sort of feel genre agnostic was because, um, as long as there's a, a character and an arc there that, is for me personal yet universal. So something that I feel like I really relate to and I think other people will relate to Mm. um, and not necessarily just because like, you know, I never, I never really want to write a movie and be like, well, it's a female character and because it's a female character, only women are going to relate to this. Like that's (laughs) stupid and be like, yeah, not interesting. And I think a lot of people are like, let's just make this a woman because women will like that. And it's like, (laughs) you're a dick. Um, but also like, I think, I I think finding the universality of somebody, you know, with Kay Graham, something that was really wonderful, a wonderful discovery for me in, in the initial research process and initial writing process of that spec was how universal her arc was, regardless of the fact that she's so hyper-specific to being like a white affluent woman in 1971 and running a Fortune 500 company. Mm, She was an extraordinary underdog and always outnumbered and always told she wasn't good enough or smart enough. And that is extremely universal outside of all the specifics she was as a human. So I think that for me is like really where I lock in. and, and, And on top of that, like I... 
want to find empathy in characters that are not necessarily on the page empathetic, like, mm. or, or on your television screen empathetic. Mm. Although there's one that I don't particularly want to write about ever, but, um, there's, I think, you know, I think we often are very judgmental and, and don't put ourselves in other people's shoes. And I think it's a real detriment to us mm. personally and also as a society. And so if I have the opportunity to help somebody see something from a different perspective, then I think that a, that's a really good use of my time and be a, a good two hours. Somebody has spent in terms of, of the actual writing process itself. I think it's really interesting that you've done some co-writing and I believe you've written with, I think Josh Singer and Dan Sterling and maybe others. Um, that is an interesting um, dynamic to me because so many writers are solo writers. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about um, what you appreciate about co-writing and maybe what it might be challenging or something that you had to learn sort of coming into a co-writing dynamic? Sure. I mean, I think really when, you know, when Josh came on, um, it's, it's was sort of an arranged marriage that worked out really well for both mm-hmm. of us. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he, when Steven Spielberg and Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks signed on to do the post, it was, I think we were 10 or 12 weeks away from shooting. Mm. Like we, they signed on and we were shooting in, I think it was 10 weeks and wow. I had never had a movie produced before. You know, I obviously never written a movie for Steven Spielberg. And so Josh <laughs> was brought on and I think both of us really just, it's, I think it's a lot of credit to, to Josh and it's a credit to our relationship where there was just a self-awareness of what he brought to it and Mm. what I brought to it and what we could help each other. And when we could say like, I can't look at this scene anymore, or you're going to be better at this than I am. And Mm. it's really, it, it is, it is a complete team effort of, we have to push a boulder up a very, very steep, large hill and not drop it ever. And so whomever can push the longest for a certain amount of distance, great. And whoever can, can come in and tap in, or sometimes you do it together. And so, um, that was an experience that I think you know, and, and we're really good friends and, and huge fans of each other. So I think that was a really interesting experience, um, mm. where I, and, and at the same time, like I just wanted to learn everything I possibly could from being on that set and being, um, an in-production writer, which is a completely different experience yeah. than writer, um, sitting at your screen. And so that was, you know, I think a real crash course and just how to be a professional in every kind of aspect of that word in the writing mm. word. And, um, so that was, that was, you know, one way with, with long shot, I, I actually got brought on, um, when we were shooting the post, I, I came on, um, towards the end of shooting the post and it so that was about five or six months out, I think mm. from where they were shooting long shot. And that was, such a great experience where Dan was, Dan had written the script, I want to say 10 years earlier. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I think the first draft was on like the 2009 blacklist or something. Mm. And so he'd been working on it for a really long time and the world had sort of dramatically changed, you know, not just in politics. It was what the movie focuses on or the backdrop of the movie, but also just, you know, for women, for relationships, for how far we had been, I think, a distance from a successful romantic comedy, um, in, in film or television. And so that was really Dan being so wonderful and being like, 
I'm ready for you to dive in and, and bring your perspective to this. And he had set up such a great, you know, structure for me to come in and such a great arc for some of these characters to, to dive into. So that was, and then, and then working with Seth and Levine, they were very hands-on in Mm pre-production. So that was sort of a completely different experience. Um, and that was also such a truncated amount of time as well, because there was the impending date. Um, for me, I think co-writing is, is really completely coming in with the, and it depends on why you're brought in or how Mm -hmm. you're brought in. But I think for me, it's always about like, what is the story you're trying to tell and can I help? That's it, Mm. you know? Um, and and that's, if I'm coming, if I'm the second person that comes on or whatever, I, I just am like, how can I help? What is it that you need? And if you need, if I can give that, then great. I'm, I'm here to help. And it's never for me an ownership thing. It's never for me. Totally. It's, it's just, I, I think anybody having ownership over a film is ridiculous. It's yeah. such a collaborative experience. You know, you, regardless of getting to day one of production, mm-hmm. you know, which is there's already a dozen or more people involved. Absolutely. Uh, once you start production, there's hundreds of people involved and then in post. And so, you know, when anybody t- <clears throat> talks about like my movie or my script or my, mm. director, my, any of those things is like, that is very alienating to, I think the mass amount of people that are involved in it. And so I try and just look at my part in it as a, as usually as the writer is the first part as you're the one setting up the blueprint for everybody, but mm. it's a blueprint. It's, um, hopefully an inspiration for people to jump on and find their own part to draw into the map. That's fantastic. And I, it feels like, um, coming out the other side that the story is so much better for it. There are perspectives that are respected and it's all about the good of the story. That's beautiful. I love it. We can't, we just can't make things in a vacuum. Otherwise, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need a T-shirt that says that. Um, <laughs> I love it. So I think one thing that a lot of people um, don't realize if they're not writers is that writing, for the most part, is often really a marathon. And parts of it are a sprint, but really, for the most part, it's a marathon. One thing I've always wondered, I'm not a professional writer. I mean, I write for ads and, and marketing, but not story per se. How do you know when a script or a story is done and ready? Like, what's your litmus test for that? Um, a deadline. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I think, I think it really depends for me. I honestly, I can't work alone. Like Mm. I have collaborators. If they're not co-writers, then there's a director or there's producers or there's a studio or there's an actor or an actress that I'm working with. Like I, don't find that my sitting and staring at the computer and rewriting it for seven months is any more helpful than Mm. me sending a draft to these people and these collaborators and having their perspective. So, I mean, a, for me, it's, um, when I, you know, like the very first person who reads everything I write is my husband. It's been that way for years. Mm. And he, and he's a writer as well. Is that correct? He's a writer as well. And he will generally tell me like, how much longer I should plan on spending on this script. Um, by his notes, it's usually fairly clear. Um, but like f- from there, you know, to get to that point where I give him a draft is not long. Like I just don't sure. find, I, I think that beating a dead horse, that, that phrase exists for a reason and it's never more relevant mm. than when you're sitting alone at a computer trying sure. to figure out what's going to make somebody 
be interested in the script. They're not going to be any more interested in it from week 15 to week 16. Like, I think it's just a matter of like your perspective and, and how much you're putting into it. And, and, you know, please also spell check and check for grammar and all of those things, please dear God. Um, but, um, (laughs) so I think like for me, that process is a, it's on my part, it's at the point when I reach where I'm like, I don't have any more good ideas or new ideas to put into this. And I need other people to come in, which frankly is very early for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and so, and I, and again, that goes back to collaboration. It's just like, I, I just don't believe in doing this by Mm. myself because I'm never going to be doing this by myself. So Mm. there's no point in alienating a producer or a studio or a director, again, any of these people that I'm working with because their perspectives are going to come in at some point and I might as well have them helping me earlier rather than later. And then the other answer to that is like, it's never done. Like you just, you're, unless the pick, the movie is locked in the edit room, like you're never done on it. So, um, I think it's just a process of, and that is, I think, the, one of the biggest lessons that every writer that's starting out needs to learn is, like, you will never be finished working on this if you're lucky enough to have it made into a movie. Mm. And you shouldn't be bitter about the fact that you're still working on it and yeah. taking notes and doing that. Like, that is, uh, that is the number one thing about being in a collaborative medium, particularly a visual medium when the thing that I do is not visual and it's on the page. It has to be adapted to be a mm. visual medium. So I think... Um, you have to learn to be adaptable mm. and be um, open to perspectives given you don't have to take them all and, and you have to be the, as the writer, particularly when you're not in production, when you're not, when you don't have a green light, when you're looking for, you know, talent or any of these things, it's like your responsibility is to be sort of the guiding integrity of the project mm. and that guiding light, but it has to be malleable to the other perspectives of your collaborators, as long as you're all kind of making the same movie and you're maintaining that you're making the same movie. That's incredible. I, I, I don't know that I've, we've had a writer on just yet who has verbalized it like that, but I think that's incredible and also must be at times really uh, must feel very vulnerable and scary <laughs> yeah. to like it's, open yourself up to that kind, you know, hopefully kind criticism or, um, but do you, do you still not. find yourself really <laughs> feeling like ah, here, take a look or, or do you yeah, feel like you sort of become immune? Oh no. It's like the classic thing, which is like you send off a draft and for about, I would say maybe 90 seconds, it's like, Oh thank God, it's off. Somebody else's, it's somebody else's problem right now to read this and give me notes. And then after 90 seconds, you're like, Oh, they're going to read this and give me notes. And like, <laughs> and you think about all the things that you'd wish you'd done. Hyperventilation. Like, yeah, and like, it's just, it's that never goes away. Mm. And I do think that is part of like, uh, is definitely a part of the fear of not sending it out is like, what are they going to say? Sure. Well, no matter what, if it's, you know, fucking Aaron, written by Aaron Sorkin, like somebody's going to have notes. It doesn't mm. matter who, it, the, no first draft is perfect. No second totally. draft is perfect. None of this. And so to have that fear can be debilitating and, and is just not useful to the process. Absolutely. That's, that's really, that's really um, encouraging to hear. Um, another question that I've kind of been mulling over is I think, uh, again, as someone who's not a professional writer, but a avid film watcher and avid TV watcher, 
I feel that a lot of writers do tend to fall into this trap of giving the audience too much information um, and not sort of making the audience work just a little bit for that story and keeping them engaged in that way. How do you work to avoid giving the audience too much information? Do you know what I'm trying to say there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I just try and treat the audience like they're as smart as anybody else and that I'm... You know, I, I think often movies get dumbed down. Uh, I, yeah. I don't, and television shows get dumbed down. And I don't, I don't. It's sort of been this thing that's been happening over the past sure. twenty, thirty years. And um, I just don't believe in it. I think audiences are really smart, and because audiences are yeah. people. Is there like a practical thing that you do to try to? I don't know if it's a way of editing or looking at a story or having someone sort of look at it for you. Is there something practical that you do to try to make sure you're not falling into that trap or you feel like it's pretty intuitive to your writing now? I mean, for me, I, I actively am probably the, uh, the most far on the spectrum of like leaving as many things out as possible and just hoping. I think that's awesome. Um, genuinely it comes to like whether or not my husband understands it because like he is very (laughs) pragmatic about it and he'll be like, I don't understand how they like got on the plane and then went to this place and da, 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 da. And you're like, okay, so then I have to do this. I have to give it um, another little, little bit. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, I think here's a great example is so like when I wrote the first draft of the post, there was not, um, the spec that sold, there was not a scene of Vietnam in there and, oh. and there was not the Daniel Ellsberg going to Vietnam and then okay. being on the plane with Robert McNamara. And that really came from me being like, people will get it. And Stephen very much felt like we have to at least anticipate that there is a 17 year old sitting in the audience who has absolutely no idea what the Pentagon papers are, nor Uh has the emotional experience of the Vietnam war, which is something that I think our generation is sort of the last generation that gets it. Our parents were in, were drafted for the most part or had some touchstone of Vietnam in their lives. So like to, I think that was extremely smart and helpful for me to be like, no, they'll get it. And then him to be like, we'll just anticipate the fact that there's a teenager watching this who doesn't have this experience. What is it? What is, and then what is the emotional way for us to be able to tell this and not say like, here's an entire history of the Vietnam war and why Mm -hmm. the Pentagon papers are important. And so I think that was really educational for me. And that's kind of the, particularly when I'm doing true stories, that's Mm -hmm. the track that I lay, which is like, okay, if there's somebody sitting in the audience who's never heard of this before, what is the bare minimum that they need to know in order to have an emotional response to this? Mm. Um, and I, and that's sort of where I operate. And then, you know, if my husband tells me it still doesn't make sense, then I add more. (laughs) You got ninja skills, girl. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in your opinion, this is something that I always love asking. Um, in your opinion, what separates a mediocre story from a really great story? Um, it's always emotion and mm-hmm. it's always, I think, I think there are two things that get really tied up in each other, which is intellectualizing emotion and, and actually mm-hmm. having emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I can definitely watch something and intellectually know that the authors behind it, be it the directors, producers, writers are trying to make me feel something, mm-hmm. um, rather than actually emotionally feeling something. Mm-hmm. And that is extremely hard to get somebody to 
laugh or cry totally. genuinely. When you feel like and you're being so, manipulated. <laughs> exactly. Or, or it's, or it's not even, you know, uh, uh, and it could work for other people. It just sure. doesn't necessarily work for me. Um, sure. is that, you know, there's just something happening that, and that for me again, comes down to just relatability and universality of these arcs and these emotions and these characters. And so, um, the separation between mediocre and good, great, excellent is always, am I on that journey with that character? And am I feeling that emotional pull, um, push and pull that I should be feeling and not just saying like, Oh, I should be feeling that. That's, that's fantastic. Are there any, um, movies or TV shows recently that have really, um, struck that right balance for you that you're really into? Um, I mean, I loved the favorite last year. Oh, so good. It's really, (laughs) um, phenomenal. And, and I thought, um, actually did both interestingly, which was like very intellectualizing and kind of having, you know, the way that Yorgos shoots sort of like this very not realistic at times approach. Absolutely. And um, I think, so there's this interesting feeling of intellectualizing what's happening at the same time. Um, you know, I think Tony is an exceptional writer and, and I think that, um, Rachel Weiss is probably one of the greatest living actresses. Um, and so when you have all of mm. these elements combined, then it adds, it makes this actual, I was actually talking about it last night. It's like the scene where oh God spoilers, everybody, um, <laughs> whatever. Um, if you haven't seen the favorite, I guess don't listen to this <laughs> seconds. Um, but like this scene when, when Rachel shoots Emma Stone mm. and when they're standing outside, it's just like, so visceral and so yes. funny and also so like you, you feel, feel everything all at once. <laughs> yeah. You feel everything. And so that's something that, I mean, I just absolutely adore and I think is wonderful. And I think killing Eve is probably oh, one of girl. Don't get me started. Shows. I love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Phoebe Waller bridge can basically do no wrong for me. So I'm like, I watch anything. <laughs> She's the queen. When I, I like I, I I'm a humongous Sandro fan. Have been oh. since you know, like 1942 when Grey's Anatomy started, yes. and I think like she's just wonderful and deserves every modicum of attention that she's gotten. Like yes. everything she deserves, or everything she's gotten for this, she deserves. But Jodie Comer for me is oh. such a like light bulb. Yes. I mean, I just. She's somebody, she's that rarity of when she comes on screen, you're like, I have never seen this before. And that goes to the writing, the direction and to her performance. Yes. And so I, I, for, I just find her so fascinating to watch and her character is so bananas that I just like, don't even know where to begin. And, and so I think, and again, like talking about emotion, like that last yes. season, season one, oh. unbelievable. And you don't get that way if you're just trying to surprise your audience and you don't get there if you're just building to this moment. You get there if you're like, what's the most devastating way we can leave these two characters emotionally? And so I, I just I, I can't say highly enough how I think that show it's is so smart and that those characters are incredible. It yeah. is. I agree. When you feel stuck creatively, and, and this kind of goes hand in hand with the next thing that I'm going to chat about, which I know you've said um, that most writing does not happen in front of a computer screen. But when you feel stuck, what are some things that you like to do to sort of get unstuck? Um, I, the two biggest tricks I have are I go and watch something, hmm. which is I usually have like a Bible, which isn't 
you know, Bible, it's like a page of paper. It's really not, the Bible feels very um, excessive for what this is, but uh, <laughs> I have like a list of either books, uh, excuse me. It's, it's a list of books, film and television, things that inspire me about the project, sure. um, things that I find relatable to the project, be it tone, be it the direction or the character or any, the plot, anything. Um, and I, before I sit down to write, I watch them all and I read them all and I sort of try and absorb it. It's, it's the having come from writing true story research part of me. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm stuck on something, I'll go back and I'll watch one of those and usually something clicks and mm-hmm. I, something will shift. And if that doesn't work, I'll just move on to a different scene. Like I write chronologically or I write, you know, in, in terms of the, I write page one to page 120, unless I'm getting stuck and then I'll move on to a scene that I know is coming and that I'm excited to write. Mm. And then from there, usually things will fill out on either end and you can kind of make your way to finishing. That's fantastic. When you're, I'm sure that you um, speak to a lot of writers, writers who are trying to make it, writers who've already made it. And when you're trying to describe to them that most of writing isn't done when you're sitting in front of a computer and they're like, but Liz, what do you mean by that? How do you sort of verbalize that for them and help them understand what writing uh, really is when it's not sitting in front of a computer. Well, it's way more fun when you tell studio executives that they I'm love sure that. They, I'm so, sure they do. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I think really it goes back to sort of what we've been talking about this whole time, which is it's an emotional journey. Hmm. If, if you're going and, and look, there are movies that are completely plot based friends that write them. I go see them. They're super fun. Um, but I think, I think if you take John Wick, for example, like the first John Wick movie is devastating and is really about like this true emotional journey this guy is going on Mm. and it's not complicated and it's not in depth and it's not like, it doesn't have layers and layers and layers. It's very simple, but it is there and it is real and it is sort of the backbone of why all of the action and why the plot works is because like, he's like, you fucking killed my dog. And so like, that's where, and, and obviously there's a lot more that's built into that, but Mm -hmm. that is a very simple way to start. And so for me, I think, um, the, you know, again, most successful movies have emotional journeys and, I just don't believe that anybody can sit down and write an incredibly intricate emotional journey on day one. Like I just, I, I, nobody lives their life Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And if you think that you're going to do that and you do it like all power to you, I'm really impressed and you're (laughs) much better than I am. But like, it's also, there's, there's so many when, I mean, writing movie or writing television show is kind of a choose your own adventure and Mm. you have a thousand different options in one character choice of how the rest of the story is going to pan out. And if you don't think about those before you sit down, then you're not going to have the right answer and you're not going to have the the most interesting answer and you're not going to have the most interesting answer after that answer. And so I just think like if you go in sitting down, like I got it figured out, you are setting yourself up to fail. And mm-hmm. I actively am trying not to set myself up to fail, which leads to procrastination mm-hmm. sometimes. But I think also leads to the fact that like, usually when I sit down, I have it pretty figured out and I have a pretty good sense of it. And so, and that's not even to mention tone. And that's not even to mention like mm-hmm. who you're thinking about for these characters and all that. So I think it's just really important to not do all of that, you know? 
you can't write about other people's experiences if you hadn't, haven't had any life experience. And so if oh, as a writer, yes. So like, <laughs> so if as a writer, you're, I mean, and also by the way, like same thing as an illustrator, you're bringing your imagination into mm. this. You're creating these worlds, you're creating these characters, even when it's an adaptation or about a true story, you're not doing a documentary and you're not Absolutely. putting, you know, a 400 page book onto the screen. You have to take liberties and you have to be able to dramatize these people into characters. Like when I'm talking about a true story, I always have to refer to them as characters because if I get hung up on the fact that they're real people, mm. then I'm never going to move on from any of, of that. And so you have to really be able to bring your own life experience, other people's life experiences, why everybody should read the newspaper. It's like just have mm. a well-rounded day and it makes you a better at creative at whatever you're creative at. Liz, you're brilliant. I This has been <laughs> so juicy. And um, I just have a couple of very quick questions to wrap yeah. us up before we go. But uh, if people want to keep up with your journey, where do you prefer they find you? Do you prefer they find you on Instagram? Is there somewhere else you prefer? Twitter? Where yeah, would you like Twitter them to follow and, you? Twitter and Instagram is probably the best. Um, it's it's Liz Hanna at both of them. Try not to complicate it that much. Um, but yeah, I, and I, I like to do AMAs on there. I like to answer questions. So if anybody has questions, shoot them at me and I try and answer them as quickly as possible. That's fantastic. And is there anything that you would like to plug or mention before we go? Uh, yep. Long shot still in theaters. Go Ooh, check it out. All right. If you, if you haven't seen it, go see it. If you have seen it and you liked it, go tell go people see it again. <laughs> you didn't like it. I'm very sorry. Um, but I hope you didn't hate it or hate me. And yeah. Um, you know, I think we all need a little bit of laughter in our lives now. So that's what we try to do. Absolutely. Liz, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap. 